You're listening to 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode, Mr. Matanian Gladden. This evening, we will be discussing Black Lives Matter with an in-depth discussion on various aspects of the movement. So, Matanya, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I appreciate you as a guest. I thank you for inviting me, Julian. Uh, I'm a, as you have discovered, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Uh, also a longtime friend and former neighbor. And uh, I'm just excited over um, this new uh, endeavor you've embarked upon. And it's very educational, informative, and somewhat entertaining at times. <laughs> yes, so thank you so much for that. Um, so let me just bring my uh, audience up to speed. Um, as for long as I've known you, you've been very in tune with uh, your community and, and uh, black and brown people in general. So I'm going to start this discussion off with um, getting your input as to what is your perspective on the Black Lives Matter movement? The uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I am uh, totally impressed with um, the impact that it's having. Uh, I think is unprecedented what is transpiring um, uh, through this movement. Um, it's morphed into a larger, um, uh, a larger mo- movement than I think anyone could have anticipated. Certainly, um, uh, it's a consequential movement. It, the, the impact is being felt on a daily basis in unpre- unprecedented ways. And, um, of course, the premise behind it, uh, the original organization, when it was founded by the three women, three sisters, um, it was to address um, police violence against uh, black uh brothers and sisters, um, particularly after the Trayvon Martin uh, murder, even though George Zimmerman wasn't necessarily a police officer, but he was trying to act in that capacity at the time. And the, the, the idea behind Black Lives Matter, the organization, was that too many of these incidents are happening with the police not being held accountable. They're not being indicted, they're not being uh, uh, prosecuted, and they're not being convicted. And to get that type of conviction is such a rare occurrence that is, in effect, uh, just absolutely not happening. Um, so um, so that, that was the original premise behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, it has morphed into a larger agenda, uh, which is not unusual, just like um, the civil rights movement um, started with Montgomery bus boycott and addressing segregation and things of that nature. Um, but then it morphed into, you know, Pan-Africanism and, and uh, all sorts of other 
uh, organizations and um, that still fell under the umbrella of the civil rights movement. And a lot was a lot of consequential laws were changed as a result of that movement as well, even though it didn't start out with all of those issues as part of its agenda. And that's pretty much it. Okay, so yeah, that that it's 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 um, is its birth, so to speak. But now we're in a place where, um. Over the years, we've seen incidents and we've seen responses to incidents. And then we had George Floyd. And that seemed to ignite something different. And uh, as I look around at the movement now, there's just so much to see in terms of of what people are putting forward and the effort that's being made and the 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 cultural mix of the of the races that are all behind this movement um i know for a fact that there are several aspects that you and i have discussed before and the first one i'm going to touch on here is you happen to be present um recently i believe it was in front of the trump tower you can correct me if i'm wrong when the black lives matter uh symbol that was painted on the on the streets was defaced or being defaced. Why don't you tell us about that experience and and you know your perspective on what happened? Sure. Okay, so uh that was um and I try to make it a habit, my lady and I, we try to make it our habit to um to visit all of these uh Black Lives Matter uh murals um as many as we can. Uh, so we've been to all of them here in New York, in New York City, and uh, we've gone to the one in, in D.C. several times. And uh, so on this particular day uh, that you allude to, um, I had already visited the, the one on our, in front of Trump Tower um, within the first week of its painting, but my lady hadn't seen it. And so I took her there one Saturday afternoon, and uh, it was either Saturday or Sunday. And so upon our arrival, we noticed, I noticed that, you know, uh, contrary to when I went there the first time, this time they had police barricades uh, around the perimeter of the mural itself, and they had a patrol car. Uh, stationed inside of those barricades. And so uh, I said, okay, this place was already heavily patrolled by the police ever since Trump was elected uh, president. But now this is, well, what I what I surmised is that they did this as a result of someone else defacing the mural the uh, day prior to us arriving there. So I said, okay, they just want to tighten up on security. But then uh, there were these two African-American women that uh, was waiting at the traffic light with us around 57th and 5th Avenue, right there by the mural. And they went, uh, uh, they walked over to the two cops that were in their patrol car that was within the perimeter of the uh, barricade. And they started talking to them for a while, and then they all started laughing. The patrolmen, the, the cops that were in the car, who 
also were African American. And so I don't know what they were talking about, but then we proceeded inside taking pictures and just doing what we do. You know, observing the cops that are stationed at the front door of Trump Tower and, and just getting pictures. And, you know, there's a sense of pride that I feel in visiting all of these painting, paintings, these murals. Um, there, there's a, a racial pride, uh, obviously, that um, that is conjured up every time I'm around them. And so these two sisters, they walked from where they were talking with those cops and proceeded down to the other end of the perimeter and started talking to some other cops. And then a car pulled up that apparently was there for them because they were directing the car to as to where to park. And so we just found it kind of peculiar and we didn't know the nature. They had, they were wearing some shirts, some shirts and, and some other apparel that said, uh, Jesus matters, but it was, they were dressed in black slacks, uh, black shirt and a, a black, uh, hoodie, like, and so then they, um, the next thing I know we're within the perimeter taking pictures. And all of a sudden we see one of those young ladies, uh, walking, chanting, uh, black lives don't matter. Black lives don't matter. Y'all don't care about black lives. Y'all don't care about black lives. And she has this whole entourage of media and police officers that were following her. And she's got, both of them had buckets of black paint. And they proceeded, they were outside of the perimeter the barricades at first, but then they proceeded inside the um, uh, barricades where the mur- the actual mural is. And then she just commenced, both of them commenced to just pouring black paint over the mural, defacing it. And it, appe- it became very, I was shocked at first, but it became very obvious to me that this is with the complicity of the those police officers they weren't trying to arrest her they weren't trying to stop her they were going through motions as though they were trying to uh grab her but they really weren't and you can see in the video footage there's plenty of video footage uh i even recorded a lot of it myself and my lady did as well and you can see me in the video asking the cops, why don't you arrest this woman? Why aren't you arresting? Why don't you stop her? Because the more she was defacing, each letter that that black paint was covering was just a dagger in my heart, in my bosom, in my soul, uh, because the euphoria that I felt over this symbolic uh, representation of affirmation for us as a people it was as though it was being just denied once again, persecuted and, and disrespected. And, you know, it just didn't help that it was someone who looked like us and she would, and all basically all the other people out there the, were the spectators, were, uh, the camera folks, the media, the police, there were a lot of, police officers out there as well but it was
was embarrassing to me that she was doing this. And so you could see in some of the video footage, you can see me engaging with her and, and with the police officers. But it was very, very sad. And um, uh, I, I have never gotten over that because it, at first I thought that it was with the police uh, complicity that allowed this to happen. But that was further reinforced that notion that I had um, by the fact that she was released after they did arrest her eventually, both of the women, but there was one who was more uh, uh, boisterous than the other. But she, and I started following her on her Instagram and Facebook and discovered that she posted her own video footage from start to finish of her doing the same thing later on that evening at the mural on 125th Street in Harlem and the other one off the street in Brooklyn. And bragging about how well did they by the police officers uh, when they were arrested and how the police officers were complaining uh, that their morale is low because it seems like no one is supporting them any, anymore. And, uh, you know, they, they were pretty much proud of what they were doing and encouraging them and all this. And so, yeah, that's when I said, oh, this is extremely dangerous. That means that de Blasio, our mayor, has no control over his police department. Um, that, that because to do this in a prominent, well-secure place like Trump Tower, um, with all those police officers stationed there 24-7 to be allowed to bring in buckets of black paint to de deface a mural, um, it could not happen unless it was with the rubber stamp and blessing of NYPD. So, and I think that's yeah. right. So, um, well, I mean, what I'm thinking about as I, as I hear you uh, recount that experience one of the things I want to get to that that's in my mind is what is your what are your thoughts and what's your perspective on black women, black people in general defacing something that's so representative of the struggle of black people? I mean, you know, apart from what happened specifically with with you know, uh, um, uh, with that event. Yeah, what are you, are you? You must have uh, uh, other thoughts about how could these black women get to the point where they see the power and the size of this movement. They uh, they have to know that the support for the Black Lives Matter movement is beyond black and brown people, and it's and it's 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 global now. What are your thoughts about them specifically and the actions they took? Well, I'm. I now have the privilege of having a different perspective because at first I was like, oh, they were just eight paid uh, operatives. They they were probably uh, you know uh, cops themselves, um, you know, off duty cops that that um, were doing this, um, you know, at the behest of the uh, PBA or th there was some other agenda they represented. But then. It came back to the reality that so many of us as a people, not just uh, African-American women, but so many of us as, as a people um, 
feel that we, we've been miseducated and indoctrinated with uh, uh, the reverse of white supremacy, and that is black inferiority complex. In other words, the sunken place. And a lot of that is by design. We're not even cognizant of the fact that we're being programmed to be uh, uh, subservient to the uh, uh, majority population, uh, majority white population. And it's, we, we're, that notion is being reinforced in our churches with the white symbols of Jesus, with the Confederate flags that are so uh, uh, um, prominently uh, uh, positioned all throughout the South. I have family down in Georgia and the Carolinas and stuff, and it's just, you, you see as many Confederate flags as, as uh, uh, U.S. flags um, in front of people's homes. And the, the, that type of thing, the, the, the monuments, the street names, everything that just reinforces uh, uh, white supremacy and domination and privilege is something that a lot of our people, unfortunately, have just succumbed to and accepted it that their that our rights are not supposed to be equal, and we don't. Many of us don't have a problem with that because again, we've been subliminally suggested to that we are inferior and we're okay with that. You know, Charlie Davis, uh, there was a great book uh, called Bullwhip Days um, and it's a a slave narrative. And uh, one of those, they're they're retelling their stories. And so one of the gentlemen, uh, former enslaved uh, uh, African, uh, his name was Charlie Davis. And he, I'll never forget this quote. He said, I'm so glad to be a Negro because nothing much is expected from me. And that lifts a heavy burden off my shoulder. And I thought that that was just such a powerful uh, admission because when nothing is expected of you, then you are not going to advocate for your rights. You're always going to feel like uh, whatever is given to you is not something that you deserve but it's because of the magnum, uh, magnum, I'm sorry, it's because of the charitable efforts uh, of those who enslaved us. And so we just are satisfied with the crumbs because we don't see that our lives in fact matter. And, you know, growing up in the 60s, I was a part of that movement as well. I, I was born in the movement. I was born in the Nation of Islam. I did, you know, Malcolm X was part of our family. Uh, he used to come to our house. We're in magazines. Uh, at the request of Malcolm X, um, he selected us to be uh, uh, interviewed by Gordon Parks, the famous uh, black photographer of the Life magazine at the time. Uh, my parents are in the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History in in um, Washington, D.C. So I was born into this movement. And, and so I know that back then, even, we had people that were working against us that looked like us. And some of them were very prominent names. Um, and, and but so we're always going to live with that reality, with that as a reality. But even back then, 
back in the 60s and 70s when Kwame Nkrumah, uh, uh, not Kwame Nkrumah, Kwame Torre, uh, back then his name was Stokely Carmichael, when he coined the phrase black power, then that was much more bodacious and threatening sounding, intimidating even, uh, than Black Lives Matter. And this was back in the 60s that we were proclaiming our black power and we were wearing uh, afros with the little afro pick combs that had black fists representing black power. We had the Black Panther movement. We had so many others that were celebrating uh, our, our culture and our right to not only matter, but to have power and to cede power for, from those who were denying us of it. And, but now we've been reduced to just Black Lives Matter. We just want y'all to, to recognize that our lives matter as well. So we're not even asking for power, you know. We're not asking for equality. We weren't. That was. The, we just. We just wanted you to know that our lives matter. Now, look at the paradox, the irony, that you got these two sisters are upset at a Black Lives Matter mural, as innocuous as that is. They are upset with just that symbol, as opposed to the Trump Tower name that the Black Lives Matter mural is facing. Trump Tower, the name Trump, has done more damage to affect the rights, adversely impact the rights of black, uh, brown people, and Asian people irrespective of what country they come from, that he has made it very clear that only white lives matter to him. This is why he talked about all of our other countries, black and brown countries, or shithole countries. Conversely, he talked about, oh, we need more people from Denmark and Sweden and Norway and, and places like this, as though there's some innate superiority and intellect that they possess that our people don't. And so for them to want to deface Black Lives Matter as opposed to Trump, the name Trump, deface everywhere, every building that's, that there are many left, but every building that still bears his name in New York City or anywhere throughout the country should be more repulsive to anyone than a Black Lives Matter mural. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, it's 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 such a it's it, this movement has such depth on this and has so many aspects um and so many reasons for us for, and for others of every ethnicity to join uh, the movement simply because um it the 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 way that black and brown people have been treated and continue to be treated and continue to be to be playing on a on a, on a playing field that is not equal, and um, and as much as as I see, like I said, you know, this is what I call Generation Z at times. When you look into the crowd, you see so many people of so many ethnicities, all believing in the same thing that you know, equality for all. Um, 
and, and you and I have had a few discussions about um, where I'm segueing to, and that is one of the things that I did a podcast on before, and, and you we've discussed this a few times, is um, crime um, within our own community. I'm segueing to that because um, the 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 what these two sisters did in terms of defacing that mural is that's one level of crime. But we've discussed the violent crime of our youth um, against our own black and brown people. And you had a very interesting, a very powerful perspective on it. So when, when you know, I, I said to you at one point, there was a weekend, um, maybe a month ago or whatever, where there were 150 um, gun-related um, uh, crimes across the nation and that particular weekend it might have been July 4th weekend that the it turned out that the victims were all 100% they were 100% black and brown and you know and, and even when we spoke about it on the surface what I was saying seemed so um, unreal and, and, and really seems like we need to you know that, it, that it's it's a major problem an isolated problem in the sense that the black and brown communities. And then you had a perspective on it that was pretty um, pretty much more in-depth and, and actually added layers to the issue. So why don't you tell us something about that? Sure. Um, well, uh, to begin with, um, I, I should have prefaced the whole interview with the fact that um, I don't have I am not arrogant enough. I am humble enough to admit that I don't have answers for uh, these racial problems that that we have and what we can do as a people to... to I, I don't have the silver bullet. I don't think no organ, organization, individual, or God, for that matter, uh, represents a panacea for all the ills that affect humanity. Um, but... Uh, and our people in particular, um, I don't see where where I sometimes uh, have a different perspective than than you and and many others uh, concerning crime within our community is that I don't subscribe to the notion that criminal activity within our community is more pernicious. Uh, than uh, crime in general. I think that we as a society, as a nation, uh, just leaving it here, right here in this country, we are the most violent, uh, uh, developed nation in the world. And this is not just black folk killing black folk. People kill and commit crime where they live where they know each other. This, this is the preponderance of evidence that has already uh, established that that's where the crime is committed. People aren't coming from, from Bed-Stuy to go to Dix Hills to commit a murder or a burglary. You know? They're doing it right within their neighborhoods, their respective na neighborhoods. Uh, crime has a lot more to do with uh, uh, the type of street, so-called street crime that we uh, are known for um, or have a reputation to commit is uh, 
is the type of thing that is it should be unacceptable, but it should be unacceptable the conditions that created these opportunistic crimes like burglaries and theft and even the looting. When people talk about even my coworkers, instead of them talking about the the movement, Black Lives, and we the, the George Floyd didn't deserve to get killed like that, then they want to focus on the looting because there's a certain narrative that they need to use to continuously define our behavior by it that makes it as though it's an anomaly to hum, human uh, uh, shortcomings. We are no more predisposed to commit crime than than any uh, uh, other ethnic group, any other race of people. And in fact, the statistics have already shown that an 85% of murders of white people are from other white people. It's not blacks killing whites, and it's not even even when you say you know just the other day, uh, attorney the attorney general Barr was saying, well, there were eleven whites that were killed by cops and eight blacks that were killed by cops over the past year. Um, what of course that's. Uh, misleading because obviously we we only represent 13% of the population and stuff. So that's a uh, uh, proportionately that uh, uh, we, we're double uh, with, with the amount of whites that, that have been killed by uh, cops. And maybe some of those shootings were, were justified. But the thing is, if you already see us as subhuman, if you already see or feel that you're superior to us, if you already are afraid of us, because of imagery that suggests that we are more predisposed to violence and all that, as opposed to seeing that the social conditions that have created this type of crime exist in poor white neighborhoods too. It exists in poor Chinese neighborhoods too. It exists in poor Latino neighborhoods too. Crime, those type of crimes that, that have defined our, the behavior in our community is not peculiar to our community. It is something that happens in all places where there is absolute abject poverty. And you go to the poorest nations in this world, and that's where you're going to see the most crime. You're not going to see uh, as much crime, and, and particularly the types of crimes that we see in in you know the Chicago and 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 uh, New York or Philly or L.A. You're not going to see that type of crime in more affluent neighborhoods, but you are going to see it in uh, Appalachia. You are going to see it in Pennsylvania, in, in the steel country, you know, all of these swing states that Trump talked about in Michigan, Ohio, uh, Florida. The, 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 in white hoods, you're still going to see the same type of crime. If we were the only ones committing these type of crimes, then we wouldn't only represent half the prison population. But even with us committing so much crime, we still are not the majority in the prison. So that means other people are committing crime too. So I don't want to hear about black-on-black crime. I want to hear that there should be a reduction in crime, criminal activity, irrespective of race, and there should be an elevation of opportunities in these neighborhoods that are so desperate that have inferior quality food in the supermarkets, that don't have fresh produce, that don't have equitable type of resources in the educational system. 
that don't have, whenever you have uh, schools in Dix Hills or Syosset and all that, where they have better resources only because the property taxes, the school taxes uh, are affording them more resources than a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn or the Bronx or something like that. It, it, it inherently that creates the tale of two nations. And so it's an economic reason behind and any criminal justice um, a study uh, will reflect that as well, that crime has more to do with economics, the economics of that community. And that's low-level crime. We're not talking about the Madoffs. We're not talking about you know, the, 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 these, all of these uh, investment traders that, that were still in billions of dollars. We're not talking about the crimes that even Trump was found guilty on uh, that affected many more people. We're not talking about the crime that he's committing right now as the head of the government by detaining illegally, unconstitutionally detaining people and not giving them the opportunity to seek asylum like his forefathers were able to do. That we can't have a double standard. There has to be one standard. Either all men are created equal or those who are the victims of that inequality are going to are never going to rest until equality is established. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's, like I said, when I first put out that podcast, um, and I, you know, I, I had a conversation with you made me, you know, go even deeper in thought in, 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 in thought in regardless, in regard to what was going on in our community. Um, even though, you know, with that perspective on that podcast, I was still maintaining that, you know, and as you just said before, we don't have a, a, a a golden ticket answer to the problems, but, you know, understanding that, you know, in many ways, the, the focus is on us so much that many people are oblivious to the fact that, you know, what we are being accused of is not specific to black and brown, you know, people. Um, and this, this, you know, so I, I, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Can I just, and two two other points to that topic. Um, one is that again we talk about the, the 150 shootings over a weekend. We we talk about uh, you know the daily increase of these types of homicides and and crimes in general, but shootings in particular. That you know, and just this past weekend, uh, as you know, I had a family member that was murdered. Um, and it, it, so I went to that, uh, uh, funeral and then, uh, one of the attendees that was at that funeral, um, went home and discovered that her, her sister was also shot to death, uh, by her boyfriend, just like what happened with my family. So I certainly can relate to the subject and I don't want to minimize it at all. I mean, I've recently been affected, impacted by it myself. But at the same time, I'm not here to say that I'm going to project all of the negative stories and experiences that we can relate to, that we can attest to with our own eyes in some of the communities that we ourselves live in. I'm not going to say that that means 
that the majority of black folk are predisposed to criminal activity and violent behavior because that just allows the police, going back to the Black Lives Matter movement, that just allows them to look at us through a different lens and not afford us the same type of respect to protect and serve us uh, in the same way that they enforce the law in uh, in the other communities, particularly the ones where they live. They don't live in our community, but they don't treat. There's no Eleanor Bumper scenario in Syosset. You know, there's no Michael Stewart. There's no Michael Griffith. There's no Yvonne Smallwood. There's no Breonna Teller victim like that to compare uh, in uh, Dick Hills. There, there, there is no uh, uh, Eric Garner situation in the Hamptons, you know. So uh, it, the, the, all these ones who weren't wearing masks when when the, the, the this whole shutdown first started, then look at who the police were targeting, beaten up for not wearing a mask. But conversely, in Domino Park in Williamsburg and Central Park, then they were handing out masks to to white pedestrians. Um, so um, th- there's just been a double standard and the increase in shootings and all that. Um, again, when we go back to the, the early 90s during the crack epidemic, then there were over 2,000 murders a year in New York City. We haven't reached that. We have, our murder rate has been uh, under like 600 for the past like 10 straight years. So overall, crime is still down a whole lot more than it was before. Now, of course, we don't want to see an increase, but if you just try to reduce crime without trying to increase the things that are causing the socioeconomic conditions that are making so many people desperate and all that, you know, in light of the fact that you got 11% unemployment now, which means about 21% in the black and brown communities, you got people now that just are desperate. And the first law of nature is survival. And I'm not saying that all of this behavior is people trying to feed their families, but it, it definitely will lead people to have, um, will leave, especially young people to make some real desperate uh, uh, choices um, that are not not really recommended for the larger society. But again, you know, J.A. Rogers said in, in my, my favorite book on race, uh, it's called From Superman to Man, and he wrote this book way back in like the 50s or something like that. And in it, he said that white people, when they see the small amount of their population that are doing great, they're very successful, like the Bill Gates or the Bezos or anyone like that, then they, they, uh, 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 they associate their own, their entire race with that small group of super successful people. Conversely, what they do to us is take the small population of us that are not doing the right thing, that is involved in homicides and and all kinds of crime and stuff. And they project that onto the entire race, as opposed to saying, 
Well, you know, the majority are like Julian, you know, super successful, corporate man, uh, entrepreneur, and all that. They don't, they don't project your image and my image. You know, I've been working the same job, about to retire 35 years. My son worked with me and raised a good family. They're all college educated and all that kind of stuff. But that's not the narrative that fits white supremacy. And so they have to tell another narrative and rebuy into that narrative because you are what you eat. Yeah, so, that, that, <laughs> yeah that, that, that's, yeah, that's really true. Um, I would say uh, specifically to in terms of um, a level playing field for employment, because I would agree that, you know, you can have the highest level of education and you can be dressed in the, in the finest suit, but the color of your skin still in this day uh, is in many cases a determinant factor when, you know, being chosen for a position, you know, irrespective of everything else. Um, and I also, you know, as you touched on it, I will go back to um, another episode I did in terms of how much the disparity with black and brown people was highlighted with the current pandemic and the lack of, not only the lack of health care, but, you know, it was something that I was very um, affected by and, and passionate about because I can remember when a news reporter asked at one of the briefings and said, well, you know, we, they had found out that places like in, in the Bronx and in, in, um, in Elmhurst and in Far Rockaway, there was the highest, um, you know, infection rate per capita, but none of these areas had testing sites. Meanwhile, all of the areas that were more affluent, you know, and, and where people had cars to drive up to the testing site, there were multiple testing sites. And it took a reporter to point this out to officials before, you know, somebody jumped and said, oh, yeah, we have to get. And then the testing site sites started showing up. But this was at a point where, you know, thousands of people had died in, in the black and brown communities. And, you know, it's 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 the same thing everywhere we go in almost every single aspect. I mean, and it all relates back, like you said, to these these communities that are are not affluent, and therefore they don't get the attention, they don't get the finance, you know, they don't get the support, and they're looked upon in, in, in a certain way. So, um, I mean, you know, it 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 it, it is just amazing that. Um, how many people in the black and brown community actually were, were, were impacted and died from the coronavirus and, and no one can explain, you know, I hate to hear this um, rhetoric about, oh, we'll do a study, you know, and, and, and to me that's, you know, sort of unacceptable because this is not new. You already know what's going on. The people who can make a difference already know what's going on. The people that all the, the pocketbooks, so to speak, already know what's going on. So I absolutely um, agree with you there 100% um, in terms of, of the neighborhoods and the poverty and how, um, how you know, there's, there's stereotypes that come out of these neighborhoods and they use that to label the entire race. And I've experienced it myself. So, you know, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's very difficult and it's something I struggle with when I look at how much I've struggled to achieve what I have in terms of education, et cetera. And still I cannot compete in a level, a level playing field. 
So um, the the other thing is that, that I wanted to talk about um, was that you had mentioned I had you know, talking specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement, and you had pointed out that there are other movements around the around the country around the world that are that are simultaneously pushing for equality that may not be as well known or may not have the focus of the current, you know, Black Lives Movement as it is. Uh, why don't you speak a little bit about that? Mm, sure. Well, uh, let, let, let me just touch on the COVID situation as well, because uh, as you know, I, I, um, I uh, um, had COVID. Um, I lost a lot of time from work uh, by um, dealing with that that virus and uh, it was devastating. Uh, I, there certainly were times when I thought that uh, I wasn't going to make it, and my family thought so as well. And in fact, they even called the ambulance on me because I live alone, and they um, they they just thought that I sounded so horrible over the phone that they sent the ambulance to do a wellness check on me. But then I, I ended up going to the ER myself, and I said, you know, as you you said before, you know, you you'll go ten, twenty miles outside of your own community to to get better service at one of these uh you know suburban uh, hospitals, and so I went all the way out to uh, I think Winthrop Hospital, and said, well, you know, at least I, I felt like death was already imminent. But I said, at least I'll get some better treatment here. So, you know, I can get tested and, you know, this. And as dead, as near death as I felt, um, uh, I still didn't qualify, according to the doctor, for a test. Uh, he just said, oh, you look like you may have a, a sinus infection. And uh, he, he gave me a prescription and a follow-up thing and, and sent me home. And so now I went like 10 straight days with a fever hovering like 102, 103 every day. Nothing I took was uh, reducing that fever and the headaches and the back pain and the loss of taste and smell. But they wouldn't give me a test. Now, I could be naive enough to think that, well, they didn't give me a test because they were short on resources back then. Or, you know, they didn't have enough test kits and all that kind of stuff. or I could say, well, you know, racism is systemic. And just because I went to a, a pretty good hospital out in the, the white neighborhood doesn't mean that the limited resources they had, they were going to expend on me. Um, because once that, once we wrap our mind around the fact that this is a systemic problem, then we realize that it permeates, it manifests itself in every aspect of life. So you can look at something like COVID and say, well, who are the ones that are dying? The ones that uh, have uh, compromised immune systems, you know, the ones who have asthma and diabetes and things like that. And what food choices do they have in these communities? How much more stress? How do, you know, going to Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and stuff, that could be cost prohibitive for a lot of these people that live in the hood, a lot of our people that live in these hoods. And so they're eating junk food and their children are eating junk food and they're developing 
uh, 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 compromised immune system just by what they're consuming. And, you know, Jonathan uh, Sozo wrote a book called uh, Savage Inequalities. I read it about years ago where he was talking about environmental racism. He was talking about how companies like Pfizer and Monsanto and all of these other pharmaceutical companies were put in, in, in areas where it's black and brown people living and stuff and all these toxic fumes that are spilling over into these communities and, and um, just basically killing us, giving us a disproportionate amount of uh, uh, asthma and other types of opportunistic diseases so, and preventable diseases. Um, but now to, to go back to what you're, you're saying about the uh, universality of the struggle, um, a lot of people, uh, what I may have been talking about, our, our struggle, you know, Dr. King said uh, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we have led in advocating for our rights as African-Americans here in this country, and that has impacted everyone throughout the world who have, who've been fighting for their rights. Uh, so this is why you have streets named after Dr. King in Israel by Sephardic Jews that, that, who felt that they were being oppressed and, and, and tr treated unequal by the, the larger Ashkenazi population. Um, you, you have the Palestinians that have embraced uh, some of the advocacy of Malcolm X and, and uh, uh, Dr. King and people like that, some of our greatest leaders. You have, uh, um, right now, you have people advocating for their rights throughout the European world, throughout Brazil, throughout the entire world, because they are seizing upon this opportunity that we have presented by our own uh, uh, victimization here by police brutality and stuff that has put a magnifying glass on all of the atrocities that are being committed by uh, white supremacy throughout the world. And that has just exploded. The, the revolution has exploded, and so has the vile uh, hyperbole uh, used by this president and the racist followers that he has uh, become so popular with. Um, we no longer see David Duke as the only white uh, racist. Uh, now we see the most powerful man in the world with all the resources at his disposal, uh, who is an open racist. And, and it has brought out a bunch of Karens and a bunch of behavior by even co-workers uh, of mine that make me um, very suspect of, were we ever friends in the first place? You know, it's making me look side-eyed at everyone. But at, the same time, but at the same time, it's good because we, again, only represent 13% of the population in this country. We need alliances, and they need alliances. We need not only to unite ourselves. You, you don't have to. Elijah Muhammad used to teach us that when you, you start an organization, don't try to get everybody. Just start with the committed believers, the ones who will go out there and make the sacrifices that the larger population is going to benefit from anyway. They may not rubber stamp it. They may not march with us. They may not uh, demand justice like the rest of us as vociferously as, as we do. 
But at the same time, years later, their kids are going to be the ones that's going to be able to get into those schools that uh, that that uh, we were denied access to. And we're going to get the jobs. We're going to get the uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, opportunities that that uh, they, that our children are going to get those because of the sacrifice of the few. So irrespective of what role anyone played or if you didn't play a role at all, the only role if the only role you play is to be in the way like the ones that are facing the, the mural, you're only delaying the inevitable. You're, you're just a speed bump. But we're still, as Dr. King said, we're going to get to the promised land. Yes, yes, yes. That is, that is, that is the ultimate goal of... I think anyone who has been um, affected enough in some way, shape or form um, because of the color of their skins. And and, um, it's funny because I was thinking of a couple of things as you as you were speaking. One of them is I remember speaking to someone who works at a hospital and they were saying just as a sidebar, you know, when unfortunately even medical professionals who should be or you hope are 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 not prejudiced and, 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 and you know are impartial, they respond differently to a black woman screaming out in pain versus a white woman screaming out in pain. Right, right, right. You know, and, and it's it's and when you have medical personnel looking at fellow medical personnel and saying this, it it is it is incredible. You know, I have looked at this from so many different lens and so many different um, areas in my life. I've looked at it. I've looked at friends that I've known for 30, 40 years and watched how their, their comments have evolved to the point that, like you said, I said, you know, will we really, you know, ever friends? I mean, I know from my perspective, this was my friend, but I'm at a point in my life now where I'm like, I have to reflect did, did you know, did this person really think of me the way I thought of them in friendship? And that has caused me to step back from a lot of friendships. And I was mentioning that to someone just today. I'm saying, you know, it is incredible that to have it. First of all, I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to know that you have friends for 20, 30, 40 years, because a lot of times those kinds of friendships don't exist as, as they did, you know, in our time. And yet at this stage of the game, I'm looking back and saying, you know, you know, I, 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 I've, I've come to, to the conclusion that from my side, I was a friend from their side, I was tolerated, you know, for whatever, for whatever reason. Um, and a lot of times I have to believe that there was a time in my life and even, even, in, in, even here where, um, racism you know before our current environment was sort of in the closet and and you know now now it seems like people have a license to 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 you know to showcase it again and now you're you it's it's gotten to such a point where they have such a bravado about it that they they blurt it out inadvertently you know they're still trying to hide it they're still trying to preserve some friendships but you know it's amazing. I have, I have, you know, even on, on things like Facebook, I have unfriended so many people, um, not because of their perspective. You can have your perspective. I don't care. 
you know, what party you, 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 you belong to or, or anything like that. And I personally don't care about, you know, what color of your skin is either. But when I see the hateful statements that you write towards another human being, I can't in good conscience continue to call you my friend, irrespective of how long we've known each other, irrespective of whether we've shared a meal, we've shared, you know, uh, a lifelong connection. It just shows me that, you know, it's amazing that as human beings, we can wear such cloaks of that, that, that cover, you know, the, the, the true us, the, who, you know, the true people that we are. And in a time like this, which is historic, you know, it is, it is, it is somewhat hurtful at the same time to see the number of friends that are friendships that I've had to walk away from. Um, and, and, and I, I, the one, I mean, there's so much more we can touch on, but um, I would hope that because of this discussion and, and, and I hope my listeners and I have listeners of all race, creeds and colors, so to speak. And I'm hoping that they understand too, with whatever they identify with that the victory is in conversation and understanding uh, what you don't understand so that you can have the, the perspective of, what some what's foreign to you is is you know it, it, what what someone else is experiencing that's foreign to you because you live in a bubble or you you've managed to live an affluent life in an affluent neighborhood all your life and you're you know sort of oblivious to and there are people like that I found out you know found people who simply have just never experienced this so they had they don't have a clue they're you know they're they're wealthy they're 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 well employed but yet they're naive as anything when it comes to understanding this kind of struggle. Um, and so I'm going to go back to the last question that I asked you to kind of wrap it up for this episode. And before I go back to that question, I'm going to, I'm going to say that I hope that we get the opportunity to, you know, maybe do a couple of more episodes because there's so many aspects to touch on. I think that this conversation is so necessary and so powerful at the time like this, but I wanted to close off with um, your, 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 input on and your knowledge and sharing what you know about other movements, other organizations that are part of the the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. Well, the uh, the again, the it's a movement that, you know, that I have to be careful with that because that's like uh, asking uh, Y'all, is the NAACP a part of uh, the civil rights movement? Yes, it is. But is it part of BLM or is it part of, you know, the the King movement, the the Southern Christian Leadership Conference? Um, No. So so there are a lot of other organizations that are uh, that are working towards the same. ultimate goals as uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, but their particular focus may not be police brutality. Uh, Their their particular focus might be the crime that too many of us are committing within our own community. So you take take an organization like what uh, Sister Erica Ford runs in Queens uh, called uh, Life Camp Incorporated. Uh, that's particularly her focus. 
dealing with crime within our community. Uh, she she had uh, actually just recently she had a very large um, uh, rally. Uh, a lot of celebrities were there. Alan Houston, uh, a couple of actors. Uh, I forget the brother's name who played in uh, when they see, when they see us. Uh, but a lot of people are down with Eric Ford. Erica Ford. Um, you know, she's she's a part of the Sharpton National Action Network uh, movement, which is enough. National Action Network is. Uh, I won't say that they are part of the Black Lives Matter organization because they're certainly not. They were the National Action Network has been around for over 25 years, but they are working. Uh, uh, under the umbrella of the movement in general, because the goals that they aspire to reach are the same ones that include what BLM, the organization, is trying to reach. And uh, in fact, every rally that and march that I attend, you know, everyone throughout the world are chanting the same mantra, no justice, no peace. And that's a phrase that Al Sharpton, Reverend Sharpton, and I'm a member of National Action Network. Uh, that's a phrase that he coined, you know. And so, does that mean that it's radical? Does that mean that we're going to go out and commit violence and all that kind of stuff? Uh, no, you know, just like when Malcolm X said, "By any means necessary," that didn't mean that you know it was an all-out uh, uh, war with gun shooting and they're killing white folk and stuff. But it was part of a we're not going to be silent. We're not going to stop agitating. Frederick Douglass said back in the 1800s, he said, agitate, agitate, agitate. He said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Those in power will never uh, abdicate that power. They have to be forced to retire that power, to cede that power to someone else. And so this is, this is what all of these other organizations, you know, there's 10,000 black men that that has been founded uh, under the direction of uh, Louis Farrakhan. Um, that's another one that's dealing with crime within our own community. Um, so, uh, you know, the Million Man March, you know, there's, I attended that. Uh, they, that was the whole premise behind that march. Minister Farrakhan went around the whole country leading up to that march to call black men, black and brown men, to attend uh, this rally in Washington, D.C., so that we could discuss, as men, as brothers, discuss what type of atonement we need to, to make for the crime and, and uh, negligent behavior that we are uh, perpetrating in our own community. And to and to pledge, we all had to walk away from that march, uh, 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 pledging to turn our lives around by going back to our community and joining organizations that are trying to do something to help improve the quality of life uh, within our respective communities. And you know that was up to that point. That was the largest march on Washington for any kind of civil rights um, on the national mall. So um, so there are many other organizations every every uh, um every city uh has organizations like that that are dealing with that and it's not just dealing with uh those type of issues you have 
volunteer organizations that are teaching uh, coding uh, that will teach your children how to do coding for free. I have a, a college professor cousin named Akil that runs another program uh, uh, called All That Math. Uh, he's a uh, math professor and an African uh, historian, African American historian out of Philly. But he, if, if you go to hashtag All That All That Math, you you can find him there, and he gives tutoring uh, of math to from K to twelve. Uh, he's been doing that. He's a great dude. And um, but there are a lot of people that are doing something. Otherwise, we would have total chaos in this country. And like I always say, you know, the majority of us are doing the right thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't have enough prisons to lock us up. So we can focus on improving those areas that need to be improved. But that doesn't mean that progress isn't being made, you know, and to, to, to not acknowledge that progress is to spit on the grave of Malcolm X, to spit on the grave of Martin Luther King, to spit on the graves of Mega Evers, to spit on the graves of Kwame Ture uh, and Kwame Nkrumah. These are people who prepared, Harriet Tubman, they prepared the opportunities that we have today. Adam Clayton Powell Jr., it prepared. I wouldn't have been able to get a student loan if it wasn't for legislation that Adam Clayton Powell Jr. enacted. He's the one who wrote that bill that allowed us to get a uh, uh, guaranteed student loan when he was in Congress. He was a preacher, uh, head of Abyssinia Baptist Church in Harlem, but he was also a congressman who was bringing home the bacon. Um, so there are these stories, but you know those stories don't get media attention. You know, there, there's another organization called CMOTAP, which is an acronym. It means uh, the committee to elect uh, to, the com the committee to eliminate media that's offensive to people, and and that that's headed by James McIntosh and and I forget the sister's name. But they operate out of Queens, and they're addressing the, the media bias and, and race, racist profiling and stuff that exists in like the New York Post and Fox News and all that, where, you know, the first few pages, their studies have been conducted on this to prove that the first few pages of the newspapers, back when you get newspapers, I'm using that example, uh, was uh, just stories, negative stories about African-American people, you know. And so it just reinforces that stigma, that stereotype that we're just other than human. And yeah. so we don't deserve equal treatment. Yeah. So, okay. yes, that was that was, you know, there's there's so much as you get into this and you and you dig deeper and into our history and the struggle. There's so much uh, more to learn, even when you know we think that we know so much. But um I would, I, I, you know, I'm going to wrap it up for this episode and with the hope that you will agree, and I'm saying this in front of my listeners, to join me again at some point to continue this very important conversation. But I thank you so much for, you know, being on the show this evening, for imparting your knowledge, for um, being not only a guest, but a guest as a part of a powerful conversation. And, um, uh, you know, and I hope that, that we can continue it soon. Well, I certainly look forward to that. Thank you for um, uh, 
this opportunity to do uh, the number one podcast in the world. And um, uh, I and it's my very first uh, podcast interview. So um, I, I'm I'm glad I got the butterflies out. I think I did. And um, and I thank you and look forward to it and, and congratulate you on what you're doing, because you're the example that there is <laughs> that our lives not only matter, but that we are so successful that we are doing the right things. And we're not just a, a good example for our own community, but irrespective of our complexion, we are a model that people of all races can try to emulate. All right. Thank and you so, uh, so much for yeah. that compliment. Um, means yeah. the world to me as, as, as I continue to uh, bring all the important mass, um, messages and matters on social justice and social injustice to my listeners out there. So thanks again. And we'll do all this right. again soon. I want to say a very, very special thank you to my guest for this episode, Mr. Matanya Gladden, for joining me in this in-depth and important conversation. As always, I want to thank my listeners and supporters, and I remind you that you can listen to any episode on your favorite podcast app, or you can do so on the website at www.247realtalk.net. You can also send me an email at podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at 247realtalk.net if you have any comments or if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Until we do this again, take care of yourselves and each other.